So this is our Simon Don reading group picking up again after a couple of weeks off. Um, so we've been, uh, so uh, I think, sorry, let me just check what page I put down. I think I said, um, I should have checked this. Yeah, so I said last time that we ended at page 63 of the translation. I hope that's correct. Um, so we've been reading um, part one of the book. So in the introduction, he outlined this sort of, um, this uh, cycle of the image. Um, so the image goes from um, the the sort of anterior form, so the image before the encounter with the object, um, and then there's uh, the the image in the encounter with the object, uh, so the present form of the image, and then um, there's the image uh, after the encounter with the object. So it, he calls this the symbolic form of the image, um, and and then after this sort of three part. Um, cycle there's a, a sort of step up to a, another level so there's a you can call it a fourth phase or a, a um, inter cycle or whatever um, the, that he calls invention um, and this cycle these three phases um, happen at three different levels uh, and so so we have uh, ultimately nine different um, categories I guess we can call them um, but so the three levels are the level of the um, biological uh, so in this, at this level, the relationship to the image is one of the whole organism. So uh, we can think of responses like flight or um, attack or, um, you know, an organism that perceives an object as um, a potential mate or as a food source or as a predator or something like that. The, the whole organism responds to this uh, image that it uh, experiences. Uh, and then the second level is he calls it psychological, but he says this is not an entirely satisfactory uh, terminology. Um, but the idea here is that at this level, it's no longer the whole organism that responds, but it's a sort of partial response of the organism, or the organism sort of um, separates itself into the image and the responding part um, as a, a sort of partial uh, a subset of that organism that can respond. So um, you can think of perception in the sort of strict sense of the term. So when you look at an object and you say, okay, this is a chair, this is a, a table, this is a dog, whatever it is, um, you are sort of uh, classifying that object under a, a concept that you have or a category that you have, um, but you're not sort of uh, immediately attacking it or running away or anything like that. You just sort of um, uh, organize your perception under a category and then you might have different um, actions that might be appropriate for objects of that category. Uh, so this is, <laughs> this is the psychological level. Um, and then the third level is what he calls the reflexive level. So this, um, he, he's primarily thinking here of, of philosophical thought, but um, we can also think of uh, religious thought, um, artistic or poetic thought. Um, so anything where our, uh, our action or our activity is itself the object of thought. Um, so it's, you're, you're not just sort of um, responding to an object immediately or, or um, having this sort of partial response like at the psychological level, but you're now looking at your own response itself and trying to use, <clears throat> trying to understand that response. So um, uh, we, we looked at um, the images that have to do with um, um, the, this sort of intuition of movement that he described in uh right at the end of the first part that we that we read uh so he talks about in 
Plato's theory of the good, the the sort of the way that we grasp this uh, idea of the good or this principle of the good that is um, above the ideas is we sort of situate ourselves or imagine ourselves into the position of the good. And then we imagine a kind of expansive movement. Um, we sort of expand outside of ourselves and um, overflow ourselves into the ideas. We, we sort of breathe life into the ideas through this expansive movement. Um, and he gives other examples of um, these sort of intuitions of movement as sort of schemas of thought. And he, he sort of suggests that this, this is how we how we kind of grasp these abstract philosophical doctrines is through these image schemas. Uh, so that's sort of a quick summary of what we saw. So part one was about um, the, the image prior to the experience of the object. So the first phase at each of those three levels. Um, and then uh, we got to the end of part one and we're gonna pick up part two. So the cognitive content of images. Um, so this is going to be, um, this is going to have to do with the, uh, the second um, second phase of the uh, at each of the three levels. Um, so we'll go through that in over the next few weeks. Um, so I'll stop there with the summary. Um, if someone else would like to uh, pick up from the beginning of that section, and um, yeah, I guess go to the subsection break uh, where uh, subsection two. I can read. Uh, okay. Part two, the cognitive content of images, images and perception. Section A, biological givens of perceptual functions. Subsection one, primary biological categories and secondary psychical categories. The role of milieu of the milieu as the role of the milieu organized as territory. We may consider the relation to the milieu that takes place according to primary categories of valence and signification to be biological. The first gathering of data that a living being must conduct is that which provides answers to questions such as, quote, is it a predator, a prey, a sexual partner, an offspring of the same species, unquote. To each of these categories of a situation, there corresponds a definite mobilization of the action system of the organism, which bestows a global adaption, global adaptation to the given situation. Here, the object is not yet identified as individual, recognized as this object, already captured in experience. The informational category of the biological is that of a first adaptation in a milieu that is not yet organized. The category, oh, sorry, uh, that is not yet organized, recognized, and classified, unless where anything can appear anywhere. It is the state of alertness and vigilance that a living being, a living being is forced to maintain outside of its territory. Within the territory, in a world where there is no longer any novelty with regard to vital categories of attack, defense, etc. A living being can deploy a properly psychical activity, one posterior to the identification of the object following the first sifting or classification according to vital categories. The issue is not to oppose the animal to the human, but to situate the frequency of behaviors of a biological or psychical type. The more the milieu is organized, the less it is necessary to conduct a preliminary sifting of signals according to the primary categories. After a cursory categorical scouting, the field is freed up for psychical activity because the class of the object is no longer in doubt. When the nervous system is less developed and possibilities of multisensorial concentration of information weaker, the activity of primary organization takes more room. We must ultimately suppose that animals can only have a properly psychical activity within their territory, and that this territory's size 
and organization is proportional to the animal's capacities of perception and integration. Consequence specifically is that resolving problems involving the inventive imagination humans deploy, detours, instruments, succeeds much better when an animal is in its territory than when it is in a situation where it could not organize its milieu. It has been noted that jaguar is capable of taking long detours when hunting, display great inertia and captivity when confronted with a problem easily resolved by taking a simple detour. The reason is that in this new, unorg- in this new unorganized world that lives in a biological regi- regime of perception, expecting to find enemies or prey or even partners, but does not see things as objects that would induce intelligent conducts. Humans act the same way, and what used to be called regression could be understood as implementing perceptual categories of biological type due to the novelty or emotional aspect of the situation. Any entirely new situation, any intense rupture in a normal situation, presents an opportunity to start perceptual classification anew, beginning with sifting through primary valences. This is kind of what you were just saying, the biological happens at the level of the entire organism. And before properly psychic perception happens, the territory has to be established, which is this broad categorization of what is going on. Um, and then objects can be, uh, can be perceived once the, once the territory has been decided on. This point about animals um, being closer to the this kind of this more primary activity i think in the abyssidaire delos says something like about how cats are never uh cats are never relaxed or something along those lines like they're always they always seem like there could be something that could you know it's very easy for them to be provoked into like a, a fight or flight response i wonder if he had something like this in mind yeah there's definitely a lot that we can um you know a lot of connections we can make with um Deleuze and Guattari about, you know, the concept of territory and, you know, detour, deterritorialization and so on. Um, I think here, maybe what I would start with is the, so the notion of a territory. Um, it already implies a certain structure to the environment, right? There's like a boundary, even if it's a vague one, there's some sort of limit to this portion of the world is, is my territory and this other portion of the world is not. Um, so there's already some structure just in the fact that you have a uh, you know, a distinction between my territory and not my territory. Uh, and then normally there's also some sort of um, directional valence, I guess you could say, to the territory. So there's like within my territory, there's my my burrow or my nest or whatever for the organism. Um, there's like the sort of center or the core of the territory um, where the organism feels the mo- the safest. Um, and uh, and then the, the rest of the territory is sort of organized around that. So whenever an organism is sort of uh, out looking for food or doing whatever it does in its territory, and then it feels frightened, it will sort of run away and try to hide, um, try to find it, its its burrow or its nest or whatever that center of the territory is. So the, the whole territory is not just organized in terms of the distinction between uh, my territory and not my territory, but also it has this directional structure in that it's it's organized around a center of some kind. Um, so there's already, um, even just, these are just sort of extremely basic, uh, uh, sort of, uh, consequences of the fact that something is a territory, uh, but there's already some structure to the environment. Uh, and then, uh, when we start having maybe more, uh, specific features of the environment, so things that are, um, 
characteristic of an environment for a particular organism. Uh, so if you, if say a dog, uh, a dog's territory has, um, you know, particular smells, uh, dogs, of course, you know, their world is sort of primarily oriented towards smells. Um, so they will recognize, you know, this territory has my smell and this other, you know, the next door territory has the smell of another dog. Um, and, uh, so there's a whole structure, like a whole world of smells that uh, organize with their territory, and they might recognize paths through their territory based on smell and so on. Uh, so um, you can see how the more and more structure gets sort of built up on the territory. And what this allows is for the organism to uh, experience uh, entities within their territory, not just as uh, sort of uh, requiring some kind of immediate response like attack or flight or whatever but as um entities that fit into that structure in in a particular way so um it can be um so uh, in, in particular what this allows for is problem solving uh so uh, seeing an entity not just as uh, an exemplar of the category predator or prey or whatever but as something that can be used in multiple ways so something you can walk on, something you can pick up, something you can uh, break or manipulate in various ways. Um, so uh, once you are capable of perceiving an object as an object, so as something that has multiple properties that can be used in multiple different ways, then you can use that object to solve problems um, that are you know appropriate for that particular species. And... Uh, <coughs> sorry. Um, the example of the jaguar here, I think, is a is an interesting one. Um, I don't know what studies in particular Simon Don was talking about here, but um, there's been, I think, maybe in the last twenty years or so, um, there's been a lot of research. So this is much later than what Simon Don was talking about, but there's been a lot of research, um, sort of revisiting animal psychology, and uh, in particular, earlier studies that showed that you know this particular animal is not capable of solving this kind of problem. Uh, because it, often it turned out that um, the animal was only it was incapable of solving the problem when it's in a particular kind of environment. So in a in like a lab setting, we put like I don't know bright lights and weird noises and you know cold floor and all this stuff. The animal uh, is not capable of solving this particular type of task. But if instead you have a, a more natural setting, a setting that resembles the animal's real environment. Uh, where it would be if it were not held in a lab, um, then the animal is much more uh, capable of problem solving. So uh, uh, the task, it's not the task itself that the animal is not capable of, it's doing this kind of task in an environment that is not, uh, that doesn't resemble its own territory. Uh, and so there's this very important link between the territory as this structured domain uh, where the animal can sort of situate itself and the capacity to solve problems by perceiving entities in the world as objects that have multiple properties. I wonder how this relates to the point that Simon Don made in volume one about uh, how the laboratory settings um, fail to capture the importance of the role of affect in perception in human perception. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. Um, uh, Obviously, in the case of uh, psychological experiments on humans, there are limits to what sorts of um, affective uh, responses you can do just for ethical reasons. Like you normally, like 
there's the uh, the famous Milgram experiment where they um, they got people to administer shock electric shocks to to actors, and they were told that um, there was a lethal dose of or a lethal level of electric shock, uh, and uh, you know the 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 uh, subjects were sort of coerced into administering what they thought was a lethal electric shock. Um, uh, and so this obviously would cause a lot of stress and uh, distress for the subjects. Uh, and no ethics board today would allow uh, an experiment like that. Um, so just any, any sort of very extreme um, um, uh, affective response um, is very difficult to elicit in a lab setting in a way that doesn't, you know, completely uh, like violate the subject's, you know, uh, basic rights to not have like horrible things happen to them. Um, so, yeah, in an experimental setting, it, it makes it hard to um, elicit the full range of behaviors for uh, for human beings. I think maybe the difference here, though, is that. Um, I think maybe what Simon Don would say is that human beings sort of treat the whole world as their territory in a way that other animals don't. Um, um, that we are, are maybe our, our sort of default response to entities in the world is to treat them as objects that, that we can use for problem solving. Um, and uh, um, the, the sort of fight or flight response or this whole organism response is something that uh, only occurs in uh, situations of, of a uh, sort of especially strong affect, um, whereas for other organisms, there's probably more uh, more of a dominance of the whole organism response, and then the uh, partial response, the the psychological re- level of response, is sort of um, um, less uh, is is an exceptional. Um, results so yeah maybe that's the difference um between the human case and other animals okay uh so let's go on to the next um subsection um this one's a bit longer so let's read yeah about a page from the subsection break if i can get a volunteer i can read um subsection two the image is immediate anticipation in the identification of the object image and concept on the basis of experiments and observations, ethologists have rigorously defined conducts of the primary perceptual type in which positioning towards the milieu cannot wait for information to be complete. One must speak, begin to act, take an active attitude, and get nearer, which is a genuine aberration, uh, operative conjecture, on the possible nature of the object as belonging to one of the categories to which the individual's action system applies. Hence, the bee-eating wasp chasing domesticated bees does not have sufficient capacity for sensorial synthesis and integration of remote information to group all of the information before launching towards his brain. If he waited to have enough information to succeed with certainty, he would miss every opportunity. Here, conduct is perceptual motor in the sense that it is composed of successive waves of information gathering and motor reactions that modify the relationship between the organism and the milieu, pulling the wasp closer to the bee and allowing it to implement a different sense than the one before. Each wave of sensorial data is the releaser or trigger 
for a defined reaction allowing the reception of a new wave of information provided by another sense. At the close of the action, enough information is gathered to identify the object, as though the sensorial synthesis had been possible from the position of primitive observation. But with this progressive perceptual motor conduct, error cannot be avoided. For the insufficiency of monosensorial information in the first stages, especially the first stage, leaves large chances of error, for instance 9 out of 10. Such conduct are nonetheless possible and productive according to the logic of increasingly committed trial and error. On the basis of errors avoided, since the first tries engage, since the first tries engage relatively little activity and are totally reversible. Getting randomly closer to a possible prey, hiding for no real reason in one's burrow at the slightest alarm. These are conducts as easily undone as they are accomplished, in contrast to the consummating operations at the close of the actions and in direct contact with the prey, following the grouped perception or the successive stages of approach behavior. In fact, progressive perceptual motor behaviors, the role of interest perceptual images is primordial. Since perception is given only at the end of the activity, at the moment of consummation, each preceding stage is founded on a sketch of perception, that is, precisely the image. The image is the anticipation of the object through potential characters that are richer than the capture of the identified object. The flying object that triggers the approach of the wasp may be a domestic bee, a bumblebee or a wild bee. It is an entire class that triggers a pursuit. Posteriorly, the contributions of other senses will reduce this anticipation rich with possibilities, and only presupposing the necessarily primordial compatibility to trigger an effective response attitude allowing a continuation of the approach. In the case of the human, we can give examples of those images presupposing a vast compossibility and bringing a defined attitude. Something terrible or threatening, even before one sees what it is, comprises a vast compossibility and generates an attitude of flight, defense, or circumspect information, information gathering. The impression that something is happening, that an important event has just occurred, is the richest even though it contains no informational precision. This interest of novelty causing a higher level of vigilance may then become diversified according to definite categories, arrival of friends or foes, bad or good news, or sudden obligation. Through successive waves, the situation closes around the identification of an object which, with which a properly psychical activity begins. A gathering around an accident, a riot, a scramble of people fleeing, are first perceived in a primitive manner even by humans when the subject is in a situation where sensorial data arrive in a new and unexpected way. Images appear, then, in the form of perceptual anticipations of potentialities, as more general than individual objects. Should we consider them as analogs to concepts and as basis for concepts? They differ from concepts in that they are a priori, allowing the insertion of the living being in its milieu and are not the result of an inductive experience, thereby a posteriori construction summarizing experience. Yet we may consider them as the basis of certain concepts 
which are in fact images enriched and focalized by experience at times in a single image. In reality, these a priori categories of perception are one basis for spontaneous associations and evocations taking place after perception. They prolong images of long-term anticipations and insert themselves in the relations to the milieu, even if motivations are less strong than those allowing entirely pre-perceptual images to be expressed. Class images are uh, gestaltized as experiments of the school of ethology on the perception of birds of prey by domestic fowls have demonstrated. In order for the alarm reaction to take place, not only must the, must the lure present a short neck stimulus, but the beak must be pointing forward in the direction of motion. There is then an a priori conjunction of form and motion in this configuration. In other configurations, there are a priori linkages of color and movement pattern, for instance. In the reactions of sexual pursuit in the male butterfly, we might also cite the gestaltized combinations of attitude, for example, raised head, form, for example, inflated abdomen, and color, uh, gray but not red. That is the a priori perceptual image the female stickleback has of the male, triggering the characteristic mating spin. Such gestaltized a priori are usually organized in more or less complex series with each configuration during conduct, like pre-mating exhibition forming the trigger for the subsequent series. But what matters here is the a priori gestaltized character of each of the images allowing an action sequence. It is this configuration that collects sensorial data and constitutes the neurophysiological physiological key of the reaction. If incident stimuli do not display features corresponding to the image, the reaction does not occur. While they are not concepts, these stable configurations allow perception to be effective and followed by a selective action, even when it is not addressed to a specific individual, but merely to a specimen of the species presenting the requisite features. See the course uh, instinct. Uh, in 1964 to 1965. These configurations are thus, for instinctual conducts, analogs to concepts for more elaborated conducts based on learning. Right, so here um, we're looking at these, uh, so he, he's drawing on um, research in ethology, so the study of animal behavior, um, and he's thinking primarily of Konrad uh, uh, Lorenz and um, uh, I forget his first name, Tinbergen. Um, but um, anyway, so the idea is that um, animal behavior uh, or the behavior of many animals involves this structure of a, a sort of releaser uh, experience. Um, so, uh, and then a, there's a sort of sequence of releasers for different stages of the action. So like mating behavior in the stickleback, like he mentions here, the stickleback is a kind of fish. Um, uh, the male has to perceive the specific features of the, the female um, before it performs uh, the sort of mating ritual. And at each stage of the process of performing this mating ritual, it has to perceive the correct response from the female or um, something resembling the female. Um, 
and uh, and the other example that Simon Don talks about here is um, the the bird of prey stimulus. Um, so what uh, um, I think this was a one from an experiment from Lavance. Um, uh, they they took like a cardboard cutout um, of a vaguely sort of bird of prey shape, um, and they um, draw it through the air in the vicinity of a bunch of geese or ducks or whatever. Um, and they, you know, did different variations on the shape and different variations on movement, et cetera. And what they determined is that the the two features that this um, uh, cardboard cutout has to have are the the sort of short neck with a, a beak uh, and m- movement in the direction of the beak. So the beak has to be at the front of the the moving uh, cardboard cutout. And uh, if if you have these two features, then the ducks or geese will um, react to this movement of the cardboard cutout as if they're responding to uh, seeing a bird of prey flying overhead. Um, and and so they'll, you know, fly away or, or in some way try to um, avoid this uh, bird of prey that they think is there. Uh, but then if you, if you, for example, if you take the cardboard cutout and turn it in the other direction so the beak is facing the back of the so the the opposite direction from the direction of movement then the the ducks or geese won't respond to the the cardboard cutout as if it were um a bird of prey so they just sort of ignore it uh and so um um these behaviors uh oh sorry there's a bit of noise i'm just going to mute you tech temporarily um just to um avoid the noise uh there we go um right um so yeah the uh and then the the behaviors of these organisms are um structured in, into a sequence of these different um responses so in the case of the wasp um the first stage is just sort of approaching something that it takes to be a bee one of its uh prey animals uh so any sort of um small moving object is probably good enough to um, trigger this response uh, of approaching um, because it, it's something that is uh, a relatively low investment of energy and uh, resources. So it can um, it can yeah just sort of um, try even if it has a high chance of error, it will just try to do it. And then um, if it succeeds, then it goes to the next step. If it turns out that <coughs> that the object um, that um, that the object was not um, a bee, then it will just um, go to the next uh, object and try again. Uh, but then if it turns out that it is a bee, it will um, proceed with the next phase of the, uh, uh, I guess, capture of prey. Uh, and so each stage goes to, um, brings about the, the following one. And uh, so this is um, sort of what anyone don't see as the basis for um, certain types of concepts. Uh, so he, he, he thinks we need to distinguish between concepts that have this uh, a priori nature um, in the sense that they, uh, uh, they're sort of built into the organism before the experience of the object, and then the a posteriori concepts that we acquire through learning. Um, and uh, so some of the concepts... Uh, a concept of um, a mate, for example, is one that an organism generally doesn't have to learn. Um, it, it has a sort of um, 
uh, it, it has the uh, pattern of what a mate looks like. Um, it, it knows this pattern before having to actually experience um, potential mates. Uh, and then other concepts like, um, I don't know, uh, uh, an obstacle to get around, for example, are things that it might have to learn uh, through experience. It might have to you know, determine that you know, trees are things that I have to walk around or whatever other um, uh, you know, type of uh, obstacles. Um, so yeah, the, there are these, there's the distinction between these two different types of concepts that Simon Dong is, is drawing on here. I thought this part where he says, where he initially says that they, they are different from concepts because they're a priori. Um, and he seems to be suggesting here that concepts are the result of inductive experience, which is kind of interesting in light of all the German idealism stuff I've been reading, where obviously concepts are always, well, the most important concepts, concepts are a priori. Um, but I, uh, I didn't understand this at first, but the, I like this notion that concepts or these gestalt images are characterized by compossibility. This seems to be um, an effect of their generality. So like the, the anticipatory image that the uh, bee wolf wasp experiences can be particularized in many different ways, and sometimes it's a bee and sometimes it's not. So it's compossible with various particularizations. Uh, does that sound right? I, I took that, I mean, I didn't um, sort of look into that very closely, but I took that to be something slightly different. Um, I took the, this idea of compossibility to mean that um, um, we have, like, so in the case of the wasp, um, it can uh, it, it can experience this you know small moving object as a bee. Um, that's sort of one uh, categorization of the object. Um, it, but uh, and then the next stage is when it gets closer. I don't know what the next um, sort of triggering feature is, but maybe it's the color of the entity uh, is the next feature, and that says, okay, yes, this actually is a bee. Um, so it's it's to, what I understood the compossibility to to consist in is the compossibility of these multiple features that uh, trigger different responses uh, in this sort of coherent sequence of actions that lead up to the the capture of prey or um, mating or whatever the actual behavior is. Uh, so it's like uh, um, like all the different uh, features sort of cohere with each other and bring about the uh, overall um, adaptive response of, yes, this is a bee, I'm going to capture it and eat it. Um, and, and so that's how I understood the compossibility. But uh, like I said, it's not something that I really looked into, so I, I'm not sure that's correct. Right, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, just I think that's a... Compossibility is an interesting way to think of a, a concept um, as well as just comprising multiple. It's compossible or that many particulars are compossible within a concept and as members of the concept or as falling under it, I guess. Yeah, here I think um, maybe one reason why Simon Don hesitates when he, he talks about uh, concepts uh, and, and sort of using the term concept for these sort of a priori um, responses is um, that the relation of an organism to a prey entity or uh, a predator or whatever is um, on the one hand 
is a response to it as a, a member of a species or as a, a representative of a certain category. But on the other hand, it, it's it's not sort of a generalization. Um, so like when when the ducks run away from the the shape that they perceive uh, that they perceive as a bird of prey, they're not saying you know they're not sort of drawing an inference like you know birds of prey eat ducks. I'm a duck, therefore I'm going to run away. They're, they're just sort of um, responding to the presence of this shape and running away. Uh, it, so there's a certain singularity or particularity to the um, response of the duck. Uh, so it, it has some features of a concept in the sense that it's, uh, they're responding to this shape as a bird of prey. So there's a, a certain generality to it, but at the same time, it's a singular response. It's a response, you know, right now I'm going to run away. It's not, um, some sort of generalization about birds of prey. Uh, it's not a, a thought like birds of prey have this property or something along those lines. Uh, so I think maybe that's why Simondon is sort of hesitant to describe these as conceptual. Yeah, uh, ducks doing syllogisms is uh, an interesting idea. Um, and um, yeah, the, there's there's a whole sort of literature um, starting in the 19th century about unconscious inferences in perception. Um, uh, so like, I think we may have talked about this in another um, session. I can't remember what the context was, but um, like the... Um, Certain visual uh, illusions, for example, uh, optical illusions, um, you can sort of explain how they occur um, by means of the idea that our mind is drawing certain inferences, even though we're not aware of, of doing so. Um, and, uh, you know, what, exact, what status exactly this concept of an unconscious inference should have in uh Cognitive science or psychology is a, I guess, a controversial question, um, and I think it gets harder to um, to sort of maintain that this is something valid. Um, the further you get away from sort of the core cases of like um, uh, optical illusions and the like, um, so in the case of the ducks that that are perceiving. Um, um, yeah, the the ducks that perceive this shape as a bird of prey, it it starts to become, I think, hard to um, hard to like uh, accept that idea um, that they're drawing an inference. Um, it, uh, um, it it seems like that's a, a very inefficient way of bringing about the uh, the actual response of running away. Uh, and you know, evolutionarily, we would expect that. Um, ducks that have to sort of go through a syllogism to decide whether or not to run away were probably not the ones that would survive um, the you know by escaping predators the the fastest. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next subsection. Um, so yeah, this one is um, a bit longer. So let's just read a page or so um, if I can get a volunteer. I can read again. Uh, subsection three, the particular characters of images of instinctual perceptions, depending on species, social aspects. Mythology has analyzed quote-unquote releasers in animal conducts better than in human ones, since residues of learning play a masking role in human behavior. The type of figurations varies, the type of figurations varies according to the dominant sense of each species. For birds, these are often sets of visual stimuli so specific that in the guise of feather appendages, they guarantee against crossbreeding of different varieties of the same species. This is the case of the set of 
colored feathers on the underside of duck wings, which males display by beating their wings during mating behavior. Songs and movements may also play the role of behavioral stimuli keys. In a large number of species, predators, prey, and relative and relatives correspond to interperceptual images. Tinbergen speculates that a similar function exists among humans who perceive certain allures and configurations that have a meaning for their instinctual conducts. Hence, there exists a characteristic configuration of the infant perceived by parents, convex forehead, chinless. This image reappears in ersatz animals that fulfill the need for instinctual satisfaction. A childless woman adopting pets chooses those that have the characteristics of the image of, an, of the infant. Dolls made by adults are ersatz of children. The optimal child selected for the needs of the film industry, Shirley Temple of Yore, incarnates the image as a quote-unquote releaser for instinctual conducts. A bird with a long pointy beak does not elicit maternal feelings, while a sparrow or red robin does. We should note, too, that the film industry sometimes constructs groupings or condensations of perceptual configurations, such as the image of the child woman, femme enfant, with, on one hand, aspects corresponding to sexual quote-unquote releasers, and, on the other hand, to children's features. Such condensations are possible because each image, being merely a configuration or grouping of features, rather than a determined object, does not present the problem of the excluded middle. Shirley Temple, beyond her optimal babyish appearance, was sexualized through dancing, singing, and situations in which she was the partner of adult males. Brigitte Bardot, corresponding to the optimal female, feminine appearance, was also, in some of her parts, if not a child, at least a gamine. Finally, certain collective circumstances produce other groupings, such as the quote-unquote toy soldier, who is both the child to be protected and the virile hero, the soldier at the front. Our biological images corresponding to instinctual conducts constant over time for a given species. This is a delicate question, especially for the human species. The quote-unquote schematic idols from Cycladic or Minoan cultures present an appearance for women that does not conform to the canons of modern European societies. Prehistoric deatopagus figures are even more surprising. We must therefore presume that images intervening in perception are either subject to evolution or sufficiently indeterminate to receive different formulations when they show up in art forms or magical and religious representations. So I'm trying to figure out how this hangs onto the preceding paragraph or the preceding section. And I guess that these, the releasers are what is triggered by the uh, gestalt, um, what does he call them? The, the images or the groups of images that trigger these behaviors. Yeah, so here he's um, sort of extending this to the human case, uh, and he mentions that um, the the these uh, concepts of releasers and and releasing behavior um, have been treated mostly in non-human animals and and not in humans. Uh, so this is obviously more speculative. Um, but um, uh, I don't remember if he actually points that, points this out uh, maybe a bit later. Um, but um, what one of the sort of results of um some of the early ethology study was that uh certain um certain stimuli are actually 
certain artificial stimuli, I should say, are actually more effective at releasing behavior than the sort of natural object that um, induces that behavior. Uh, so I think I mentioned this in a, a previous session. Uh, there's a certain kind of uh, seagull that um, its its eggs are like uh, off-white with brown spots or something like that. Um, and uh, the ethologists um, uh, produced these artificial eggs that were much bigger than their own eggs, and they were like bright yellow with red spots. Uh, and the birds actually preferred these artificial eggs. They would sit on and like try to hatch the artificial eggs uh, and abandon their own eggs. Um, so the the sort of um, uh, schema that they have of like what an egg looks like or um, the sort of uh, perceptual uh, properties that an object has to have for them to say that's a good egg, that's something that I want to sit on, um, are sort of you know the the color contrast between the spots and the the background color um, and size uh, and and so you can sort of artificially induce the behavior by uh, exaggerating the contrast and the size. And so Simondo is sort of drawing on this idea and looking at human behaviors um, uh, in relation to the film industry in particular. Um, and um, so we can see, I think, a lot of um, uh, like fashion, uh, makeup, and all these sorts of things as um, uh, sort of uh, playing the same role of artificially releasing certain responses in humans um, in a similar way as these uh, sort of fake eggs did with the seagulls. Um, so something like just a you know, really basic a basic example would be um, lipstick, for example, um, emphasizes the or um, exaggerates the color contrast between lips and uh, and skin. Um, and uh, uh, so that we can see this as a, a sort of um, artificial releaser of, uh, you know, a, a certain um, response in other humans. Um, and, and Simon Don talks about some of the uh, film industry examples. So Shirley Temple, um, for those who maybe don't know, she was a, a child star in, I think, the 1930s um, or maybe a bit later. I'm not sure exactly. Um, but anyway, she was a, a one of the early child stars in uh, in Hollywood, um, and uh, so Simon Dong takes her to be sort of like the optimal image of the child. So um, in the same way that the seagull sees this, you know, uh, red and yellow egg as like the um, um, as the uh, sort of optimal egg, uh, humans uh, watch, or at least uh, Europeans watching these movies. Um, see Shirley Temple as like the optimal child. Um, um, and, and so like all the sort of child features, <clears throat> everything that makes uh, an object uh, sort of exemplify the, the uh, nature of a child is sort of uh, exaggerated or highlighted in Shirley Temple and in the way that she's presented in, uh, in Hollywood movies. Uh, you know, the, whatever, the, the makeup and hairstyles and, and clothing and uh, uh, camera angles and everything, all, all of that sort of goes into uh, exaggerating her quality as like the optimal child. Uh, but then he points out that um, something that sort of complicates this analysis is that you can have these like condensations of multiple images into one um, entity. So he talks about the the child woman uh, sort of 
condensation. So um, on the one hand, Shirley Temple is this optimal child, but on, on the other hand, she sort of is um, treated as um, uh, as a, a woman, as an adult human, um, and um, uh, you know, in the way that she um, is sort of paired with adult men um, in certain films and uh, and uh, her singing and dancing and so on. Um, so her the image that she is sort of uh, incarnating is at the same time this optimal child, but then also uh, the woman. And then sort of the other direction um, with Brigitte Bardot, um, he, yeah, Simondon sort of puts it that she's like the, the optimal woman um, uh, or the optimal woman image. Um, um, but she also sort of um, takes on um, takes on the role of uh, at least being childish, if not um, actually a child. Uh, so yeah, there's a sort of condensation of multiple images into one entity, or an entity can take on images um, corresponding to different uh, types of objects. And then he also points out that uh, um, there's a difficult question of um, you know what um, to what extent are these image um, releasers in human beings sort of a biological constant and to what extent are they culturally um, uh, malleable, I guess. And he points out too um, that there are, you know, these prehistoric sculptures, um, they're sometimes called like prehistoric Venus or whatever. Um, um, uh, I was trying to find a, an image uh, of some of these, um, but they have uh, certain exaggerated features that um, most of us today or in Western societies at least would not describe as being beautiful. Um, um, but uh, uh, it seems, I mean, it's hard to sort of uh, know exactly what their use or understand how they were understood in societies that, you know, haven't existed for tens of thousands of years. Um, um, but it seems like they were experienced as beautiful or desirable in those societies. Um, and so it does seem like there there has been change over time in terms of which uh, sort of you know what what sort of shape is uh, experienced as like the optimal woman or the optimal child or or um, the uh, any any of these sort of optimal images um, is subject to variation over time. I wonder if this uh, the point about the images not presenting the problem of the excluded middle is another way in which they differ from concepts, which obviously do present that problem. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so if you're thinking in concepts in the sort of strict sense of the term, um, of course, you can't classify the same entity as um, a child and as an adult woman at the same time. Um, you would have to, you know, pick one or the other. And uh, and those two concepts are exclusive of each other. Um, um, but uh, in the case of these images, you can have um, sort of uh, the same entity can incarnate multiple images or can um, trigger multiple responses in uh, observing humans um, that correspond to different types of entities. Um, so, yeah, I think that's maybe a good uh, a good reason why Simondon is hesitant to describe this kind of behavior as uh, conceptual. Um, interesting 
thing I thought was um, that the language of condensation and yeah, he he he, I think he mostly speaks of condensation here, and specifically then in in relation to well, human cultural context, right? Introduces all already basically a structuralist semiotic language, right? Like condensation and what's the English term for verschiebung? Uh, I, I don't know, like the two, uh, uh, in Freud, the two operations of the unconscious, right? The, in, in the primary process um, and in, in structuralist semiotics with um, metaphor and metonymy and, and Jacobson. Um, you have these operations at the base of, of discursive processes. And um, yeah, I, I found it interesting that uh, that parallel here, because it maps nicely right in 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 this in in this um, region of ambiguity between what 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 basically like where we where we are in this twilight zone between between natural and cultural um images if we, if you want to use that language are here in this discussion right sorry i'm 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 rambling a bit but um yeah and also i i I kind of had this association to um like there's a German book about um Foucault's Darwin reception um that's making a claim to to uh, to to reading evolution as a semiotic process where 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 it draws on a concept uh, or, or where, where it draws on on um that comments on a kind of thing like this where where it argues that um pro like Beauty and like symbols in 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 animal mating behavior still are semiotic processes, right? Like that you that this that you can't treat them as in like as automatic um, um, stimulus response um, chains um, of of basically a code where every where every signal has a definite response, but that it's um, very much, much a semiotic process where, where some kind of semiosis, the slippage of, of, of meaning is happening. Rambling. I'll stop rambling, but that was just some associations I had there. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, the English for Feshibung is, uh, displacement. Um, so yeah, condensation and displacement are these two, um, processes in, uh, the dream work that, that Freud talks about. Um, and yeah, so when Simon here uses the term condensation, uh, I think, yeah, we're definitely meant to hear a sort of uh, psychoanalytic resonance there. Um, and uh, I think, um, um, yeah, there's uh, a kind of, I guess, how you get more complicated images that are not just that sort of code that you're talking about, where you have like this type of experiential input produces this type of behavioral output. Um, so condensation is one means through which you get more complicated uh, interactions between images and uh, and behavior. Um, so if uh, an object can um, exhibit images that or can exemplify images um, with different types of um, behavioral responses that are appropriate to them, then the organism that uh, sort of perceives this object as having these conflicting images or these uh, 
different images um, incarnated in it, uh, the organism has to sort of decide which one, uh, you know, whatever exactly you want to understand by decide, but it has to sort of select one of those images as being the one that it will respond to. Um, uh, so if you, uh, you know, the, the child woman uh, condensed image, you have to either respond to the this person as a child or as a woman, um, and you can't sort of do both at the same time, or or at least um, it's it's more uh, complicated to do both at the same time. So you, you um, yeah, you the behavioral response um, will have more sort of richness and uh, openness, I guess, insofar as the images uh, allow for this kind of condensation to happen. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read if I can uh, get through without coughing. Um, so let me try to uh, get through that. Okay. Uh, finally, Tinbergen. Tinbergen considers that the triggers of instinctual conduct can only act in a concrete perceptual situation. In particular, a regulation of conducts takes place through changes in the configuration of the concrete and complete situation. A fight might be stimulated at the onset by the sight of the opponent, but it is conversely de-escalated as soon as the opponent is viewed on the ground, wounded or bleeding. The perception of spilled blood forcefully inhibits aggressiveness. It corresponds to an instinctual image. Indeed, we note the existence during fights among animals of submission or retreat, inhibiting the opponent's aggressiveness even before any wound. Tinbergen suggests that, the contem that contemporary wars have become particularly lethal, not only by way of an increase in weaponry power, but also because weapons hit remotely without any possibility of seeing the image of dead or wounded enemies. The situation has become all the more ambiguous since the stimulation of aggressive conducts takes place as much or even more than before through the image of the opponent, while the instinctive de-escalation of the, of the deployment of aggressive conduct, the image of a corpse, no longer exists. Sometimes, photojournalists and war correspondents act as channels for the inhibiting image. During the Korean War, newspapers across the world printed the photo of a four- or five-year-old Korean girl crying on the battlefield over her dead parents, alone amidst a chaotic landscape. A similar event occurred recently in France when a little girl named Delphine was the victim of, ter of a terrorist attack. In relation to the development of each individual, elementary interperceptual images emerge one after the other to make possible the perception of reality with a defined meaning. We could call this the, quote, possible consciousness, unquote, of the individual. It is not a matter of global perceptual or intellectual development, but of the capacity for perceptually processing the meaning of a situation. Hence, a child non-sexually aware might perceive the mating behavior of animals as a fight. In the performance of a play from classical theater, a child scarcely perceives the situations having to do with amorous feelings. Such scenes are for him without structure and empty. By contrast, a dispute over an injustice, like the one with which Corneille opens Le Cid, is clearly perceived by a young child, since situations of competition correspond to his own relation with the milieu. The notion of possible consciousness is indeed related to the perception of situations in a primitive mode, yet it is difficult to account for it with the notions of gestaltization defined by ethology since it implies a collective aspect. At a certain time and in a, a given situation, a given group is able to grasp the, meanings of a, the meaning of a situation, while other situations do not have any meaning for it. For instance, during the Russian Revolution, peasants immediately grasped that land ownership had changed, but not that political authority no longer belonged to the Tsar. Possible consciousness acts as a selector of the incident information, welcoming certain traits and refusing others. In the genesis of myths and the deformation of news and the spread of rumors, possible consciousness plays a central role. Hence, Christianity was seen in Rome as an initiatory religion conducting the human sacrifice of small children, since such a conception corresponded to the representation of actual initiatory cults, 
in some religions from distant lands. Here, possible consciousness amounts to the, quote, non-Roman, unquote, as compounding all that is exotic and barbarous. Of course, since these are conscious representations belonging partly to cultural context, contents, we might say that there is nothing biological in such ways of perceiving. Still, they are primary, but at the level of the collective. They are modified according to collective conditions, feeling of danger, pressure toward conformity, and constitute the basis for psychosocial regulations. The representation of the foreigner or the deviant is in reality a perception. The socius is perceived without mediation in a way that is as primary and as gestaltized uh, in a way that is as primary and as gestaltized way as the partner or nurturing parent is. The idea that the domain of social reality is that of learned behaviors, while the directly biological categories devolving from instincts would be spontaneous, is very much theoretical. On the plane of phenomena, intraperceptual images have meaning for psychosocial situations. They're no less spontaneous or less primary than those that allow for a primordial adaptation to dangerous situations or the relationships between parents and their young. The human face, seen frontally, whether familiar or unknown, is probably one of the first gestaltized perceptions of the infant. The valence of familiarity or foreignness is part of perceptual processing, as is that of predator or prey. This foreshadows the importance of the perceptual and primary character of cultural stereotypes, cliches, with their attendant reactions. Humans are zoon politikon. Uh, yeah, let's actually stop here, um, we'll read the next bit after. Um, right, so here, um, these are more um, examples of the relationship between these sort of releasing images and um, the behaviors that, that are they're related to. And in particular, um, only uh, organisms that have uh, the possibility to respond in particular ways are able of are are able to um, to react to certain features of the environment. Um, so, um, uh, like the examples that he talked about here, have to do with um, aggressive behaviors. So many animals, um, in in many animal or in many mammals at least, um, the males will fight over a female uh, or the opportunity to mate with a female. Um, uh, but most of the time, these fights uh, don't proceed, you know, to the death. Um, one of the males will withdraw once it sort of realizes that it is not capable of defeating the other. Uh, so they're in the whole sort of set of behaviors that make up this fighting um, ritual or this fighting behavior. Uh, there's some sort of um, withdrawal or submission um, behavior. And then once the other organism sees that uh, the first organism is submitting, the aggression response is um, sort of inhibited or de-escalated. So um, it's only it's only because the organism has this capacity to um, first uh, respond with aggression, but then secondly to um, inhibit that that aggression. Um, uh, it's only because of this that the organism can actually um, respond to the submission behavior of the first organism. Uh, so uh, the what Simondon tries to uh, extend this to the human case um, um, with a few examples having to do with, uh, for example, children watching a play. Um, so he suggests here that they uh, are not, they don't fully understand the um, love stories in a play. I don't know, Romeo and Juliet or something like that. Um, this idea that, uh, or, or you know, small children don't have the experience of 
um, being in love and uh, passion, uh, overcoming um, other responsibilities and so on. Um, so this aspect of the play is something that they will sort of, that sort of goes over their head. They don't really understand what's going on. But uh, an aspect of the play in which um, some uh, a person uh, protests against the uh, an injustice that's been done to them. Uh, the children um, understand this very well because they experience um, injustice uh, being done to them or unfairness being done to them on a regular basis. So um, there. So this is what Timodo means here by possible consciousness. So uh, an organism or a, a person is only capable of responding uh, of experiencing certain. Uh, types of images insofar as they have this capacity to um, perform the appropriate behavior. I think this, the idea that these, um, this possible consciousness is collectively determined is really interesting. Um, and in volume one, Simon Don argued at various points that certain aspects of psychic life are only possible in the collective, um, including knowledge and action. And maybe this idea of a collective possible consciousness um which determines even perception apparently in this section is one instance of what he had in mind in in that uh those passages in volume one yeah i'm not 100 percent sure um i i think maybe here when he talks about collective he's not thinking of his um more sort of specific usage of that term in individuation. So in individuation, um, we saw that he distinguishes between, um, and let me see if I remember the exact terminology, but he talks about um, sort of uh, social um, organization uh, through the division of labor. So um, there are organizations in which uh, individuals have particular roles that they have to play um, one person is the janitor, one person is the receptionist, one person is the president of the company or whatever. There's, uh, you know, particular social roles that everyone plays in an organization. Um, and then there's um, the other sort of extreme is um, exchanges between individuals. So the, the market is sort of the, the paradigm instance of this. So each individual um, is sort of a, a pre-given entity, and then they sort of uh, perform some exchanges of goods or or services or whatever, um, um, but those exchanges are sort of external to their nature of what they are. Um, and then the collective is something um, sort of intermediate or um, distinct from either of those two types of uh, uh, sort of organization of uh, individuals with each other. Uh, and the collective has to do with this sort of um, second level of individuation. So the individuals within a collective are not pre-given before they form the collective. They undergo a, a new kind of individuation into a collective. So that's that's sort of a quick summary of like the his specific idea of what a collective is. Um, but I'm not sure if here he's using that exact idea of the collective or his sort of specific idea of the collective, or he's just talking about, um, you know, social groups in general. Uh, and the reason why I think he might not be talking about his own um, conception of, of the collective is that um, a lot of these types of um, a lot of a lot of, a lot of these types of images that he's talking about are sort of uh, 
pre-given and not things that have to undergo uh, a sort of new individuation. Uh, so like the Romans who um, who think that Christianity is a, as a, a child sacrifice cult, um, they sort of um, have this pre-given sort of stereotype of what, you know, foreigners or foreign religions consist in. Uh, and they just sort of classify Christianity under this pre-given concept. Um, and uh, so this, to me, doesn't seem, doesn't seem to have anything in, like a, a sort of process of individuation um, going on in it. Uh, there's a, a pre-given concept and you just find something and stick it under that concept. Um, so I think, yeah, I think here when he talks about the collective, he's probably not um, thinking of it in, in the specific terms um, that he used in individuation. I think that um, I think that the Romans would certainly be a collective, um, and I think that the you know the the perception among the Romans is of things outside of outside of Roman culture is determined by these um, the possible consciousness of the Roman collective. I guess is how I was reading that. Yeah. So um, they're definitely yeah. So the Romans as a as a group, um, uh, I'll just use the term group here instead of collective um, provisionally. Um, um, so Romans as a group have this uh, possible consciousness. So they they're only they don't have a, a sort of uh, a category to put Christianity under that doesn't sort of deform it. Um, so the only category that they have for Christianity is you know this foreign barbarous cults. So therefore they must sacrifice children. Um, um, yeah. So uh the the group at this uh, the group here sort of determines what um kinds of experience or uh perception of christianity individual romans um will be able to have uh and so in this sense the group determines the possible consciousness of an individual roman um but i think the question about whether this group corresponds to the collective from in the individuation book uh the question the question is is there something like an individuation happening when a Roman um, sort of perceives Christianity as a child sacrifice cult? Um, and I think the answer to that is no. I think um, what's happening is that the the Roman is just, you know, this individual Roman who says, oh, yeah, that they're, you know, these foreign barbarians, therefore they must sacrifice children. Um, this Roman is just sort of using pre-given categories that have to do with something like a, a social division of labor or um, uh, a pre-assigned social roles um, as opposed to um, sort of performing an individuation. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's like the, yeah, the Romans are a collective, but they are not, there's a epistemological deficiency in the Roman collective's way of knowing these outside groups. Yeah, so like the collective life of the Romans, for example, would be um, uh, sort of um, exemplified by the way that the Romans, um, um, like, I, I guess, Roman political life would be maybe a, a, an a, uh, exemplification of the, the Romans as a collective. So they um, sort of um, uh, understand themselves, Romans, Roman citizens uh, understood themselves in terms of where they they sort of uh what sort of role they played in the uh 
Roman Republic, uh, if we want to stick to that period. Um, and they sort of thought of themselves in terms of how they contributed to the, the glory and um, uh, longevity of Rome. Um, so uh, one of the sort of um, values that a Roman citizen would uh, exemplify was uh, sacrificing themselves for the Republic. Um, there's the, the famous line about, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Um, it is uh, it is good and uh, fitting to die for one's uh, fatherland. Um, um, so yeah, this was uh, a value that at least officially most Romans would have uh, agreed with. That um, you know, dying for the Rep the republic or uh, sacrificing your life for the republic was um, something that was valuable and uh, and good. And and so by virtue of sacrificing their lives for this um, republic, they're sort of incarnating this collective life of the republic as something that is beyond any one individual. Um, uh, but then, you know, in relation to other, uh, other city-states, other peoples in the world that they came across, um, they, they sort of um, fall back into this sort of social role um, hierarchy or this uh, structure in which individuals are sort of assigned to these pre-given categories. So a Roman is someone who acts in this way, uh, a foreigner is someone who acts in this other way, um, and uh, we have these pre-assigned roles and we, we just sort of um, fulfill these roles that we are assigned. Uh, and uh, and um, yeah, so that's, I think, how the Roman who sort of perceives Christianity as this child sacrifice cult is sort of experiencing um, the world in virtue of this, these pre-assigned categories. Right. Yeah. Um, I think uh, what I find really interesting about this is that like, it's almost like a um, like value ladenness of perception at the, at the level of the collective. Um, it's not even just a matter of, collective values determining, you know, what knowledge is produced and circulated, but even the way that, you know, the way that things are perceived by members in the collective, even in a, a negative sense, obviously here. Yeah. So here, um, um, yeah. So for anyone who maybe is not familiar with this terminology, um, so the, the value ladenness of perception is something that um, within 20th century philosophy of science, um, I forget who actually introduced this term, but um, there was in the early 20th century, the logical positivists had this idea that you could um, sort of take competing scientific theories and reduce them to like um, these uh, protocol sentences. So they would say that, you know, if you stick this piece of paper in the solution, it will turn red. And then the other theory would say, if you stick the paper in the solution, it will turn yellow. Uh, and then you would just sort of compare the two theories with the evidence and you would select the one that has the best that's that's verified by the evidence and um the sort of objection to this and i'm of course oversimplifying here but um the objection to this is that uh a lot of the time what the actual um conflict between different theories or or disagreement between different theories turns out to be is not like some some sort of shared idea of what the evidence would be and then uh you know making different predictions but it's actually um that the different theories have like different ideas of what, of what evidence actually is. Uh, 
and and so someone who who follows um uh like one example i think uh uh thomas kuhn i think gives this example um that um joseph Priestley uh isolates a gas uh that he calls deflogisticated air um and uh you know he talks about what role it plays in combustion and so on um uh, and then it's only a few years later that um, Lavoisier uh, identifies this as oxygen, uh, and he explains what role it plays in combustion uh, in a in a different way. Um, and uh, so one so and then you know one way of talking about it would be to say that you know they both identify the same gas, but they um, use different concepts for it. Um, um, but that sort of uh, is like anachronistic in the sense that we're looking backwards and saying, you know, what we call oxygen is what uh, Priestley called deflogisticated air. Um, but you know, from the perspective of Priestley and Lavoisier, they were actually talking about different things. Like they, the things that they were describing um, had different properties, uh, and so there was no way of like comparing exactly what predictions those two theories would make. Because they were actually talking about different things, and so and and so the sort of alternate way of understanding what happened there is that they were actually um, perceiving different uh, entities in the world, uh, even though the the sort of experimental setup might have been similar. Um, and uh, and so here in in the case of Simon Don, um, he's talking about um, this value ladenness of perception in relation to. Uh, experiential categories uh, of uh, other people, for example, stereotypes and so on. Um, so the Roman who, uh, you know, uh, experiences Christianity as a child sacrifice cult um, is doing this not on the basis of, you know, actually perceiving what Christian rituals look like. Um, this is a sort of uh, a category that they already have uh, prepared for the for Christians or for these exotic uh, religions. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there's a, a sort of, um, value ladenness to perception in, in the sense that they, they already have these categories, um, prepared and, uh, yeah, so the, the actual experience of, you know, observing a Christian ritual, they will sort of immediately understand what they see in terms of that child sacrifice, um, concept. Okay, um, let's read one more. Let's read to the end of this subsection. I'm kind of losing my voice, so um, we, we'll just read up to there, and then we'll, we'll end for the day. Um, so if I, if I can get a volunteer to read to the uh, section break of subsection 4. We are these adventures. Uh, well, sorry, yeah, I'm uh, sorry. It uh, froze for a second. Can you hear me? No, no problem. Wait, uh, oh, sorry, I did mine. Cut out. I can't tell if it's on your end or my end. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. I think it might be my internet. Okay. Um, like yeah, so okay yeah, it seems like it's working better now. Um, yeah, so we are at um, the existence of images. Okay. The existence of images constituting the primitive categories of perception before being affirmed in a definite and universal way deserves more pointed research. Indeed, it is beyond doubt that there exists possibilities of qualifying at the, out at the onset groups of stimuli according to instinctual categories across many species, especially in the register of the dominant sensibility of each species. For example, minnows have a substance in their blood that spreads in water when an individual in the group is wounded, 
This substance provokes fright in the entire group. As soon as other individuals detect its presence in water, they adopt an immediate reaction of flight. It is neither a matter of training nor of learning. The sense of sight being dominant among primates, psychologists, particularly those of the Gestalt school, have sought to find visual structures acting as similar alarm signals or having the power to attract. A young chimpanzee is scared by a doll whose eyes are made of shoe buttons. This would be called pithecophobogenic visual structure. Yet, Giraud criticizes um, this interpretation by stating that the doll scares the young primate because it is new and unexpected in its experience. For Giraud, the innate structures serving as a basis for perception could not have reached such a degree of selectiveness and precision, if they exist at all. It is indeed very difficult to establish the degree of generality, hence the richness and compossible forms that a primary perception may harbor. Is there either a primary response, a primordial perception for what, for that which is scary or dangerous, or are there two primary categories, attraction and repulsion? And is novelty attractive or repulsive? It is repulsive as possible danger, as presence of a putative predator, but it is also attractive as the possible presence of some object that may be a prey or partner. It's not easy then to affirm that novelty in itself is either repulsive or attractive. Novelty is a category that contains all possibilities of reaction. Prior mobilization of reactions is a state of heightened vigilance. After the first wave of information gathering, this state may be channeled towards inducing an action system to either flight or approach. However, dichotomization into reaction oh, sorry. Trigger the dichotomization into reactions of flight or approach. This is often the case for the young who have imperfect sensorial adaptations. The result the response is then vigilance and curiosity. Yet in certain cases the orientation of reactions seems to be forced on the organism by the immediate meaning of the structure of the stimulus. A dove that has always lived in a cage will react by fleeing when presented with a snake. Uh, without any prior reaction of vigilance or curiosity. Young monkeys display fear reactions to a human being dressed in large black veils corresponding to the image of a ghost. On this basis, it is difficult to say whether all perceptions begin with very general stages such as the reaction of novelty before splitting into a dichotomy of scheme, dichotomy scheme of flight or approach attitudes, continuing until the activity of consummation execution whether some perceptions begin immediately with the reception of an already strongly orienting signal that is selectively received without learning and that triggers a definite appropriate reaction as in, as in an automatic function. It is likely that both perceptual modalities exist and their relative importance depends on the species. They have, and that they have different consequences for the introduction of learning processes, since the stereotypical response to a stimulus key lacks plasticity and adaptability because it is not progressive. So with these uh, stimulus responses, it seems like the, the primary categories are either there's a novelty that can then be organized into either uh, light or, or, I guess, attraction or repulsion, or there is an automatic attraction or repulsion response, although the only examples we get of those are repulsion responses. Also, it's kind of funny, the the test uh, where they dressed up as ghosts to scare chimpanzees or whatever. Yeah, you have to um, wonder what exactly the uh, like um, research process was where they someone decided, yeah, let's dress up as ghosts and see if monkeys are scared. Is that... Um, um, 
Yeah, that reminds me of um, the earlier one where he talks about monkeys being taught how to write and uh, where that wasn't very effective. Um, um, but yeah, the idea here is um, that there's a, a certain amount of variation in terms of um, the extent to which um, the attraction or repulsion response is um, sort of immediate. Uh, so um, <coughs> certain stimuli um, elicit this attraction or repulsion response without any prior learning or investigation on the part of the organism. Um, so um, like many organisms will um, react with a fear response and flight um, to the presence of a snake, um, uh, even if they've never actually seen a snake before. Uh, and so they, it's not the case that they've learned that, you know, snakes are dangerous or, or whatever. Um, they um, experience the snake as dangerous or as something to be feared um, prior to any learning. Um, and then in other cases, um, the sort of new the new stimulus or something they've never experienced before doesn't elicit um, this immediate response of attraction or repulsion. It instead elicits what we would call curiosity or um, uh, a sort of um, investigatory response. So if you just, I don't know, put a box into a chimpanzee's cage, it will probably, um, you know, pick up the box, try to, you know, open it or, you know, investigate what exactly this box is or what what it can do with the box um um so uh um these types of entities will elicit um uh investigation uh, as opposed to an immediate um uh, attraction or repulsion and so the i think the the point here is that um um sorry sorry i lost my train of thought um just a sec <coughs> um yeah, so the point is that um, there's a sort of domain of research that for Simon Dahl argues hasn't really been fully um, exploited yet, which is that you can sort of investigate for different organisms what kinds of um, um, what kinds of uh, stimuli they will experience as attractive and or repulsive um, prior to any learning, uh, and which ones they will experience just as uh, something new to be investigated. Um, and you can try to classify, you know, what properties um, uh, an object has to have to fall under one of those categories. Um, so uh, that would be a sort of a, a whole like research program for animal psychology that um, I think even today probably hasn't been uh, like systematically carried out. Yeah, we should do a, a, a full investigation of all the different types of monsters and see which ones monkeys are afraid of. Uh, are they afraid of zombies, uh, vampires? I don't know. Um, okay, uh, so I think we can stop here before my voice gives out completely. Um, so um, we'll pick up from page 71 um, next time. Um, so hopefully everyone will get back into the habit of uh, meeting every week after our break. Um, so um, thanks everyone for coming out. Thanks for your contributions and uh, see you next week. Thanks, Don. Hope you feel better.